Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detail. Once again, I am fortunate enough to have not one but two guests join me today. I am thrilled to welcome Don Copper, Managing Principal, and Ryan Von Drail, Principal at GREC Architects in Chicago. City I love to visit. By the way, you guys ever want to invite me out, I'm totally in. Don and Ryan have a long professional relationship and have collaborated on many projects together over the past 20 years. Their work has focused on articulating and interpreting the stories and places their buildings occupy with the hope of creating contextually rooted but open-ended spaces for the communities and individuals who will occupy their buildings. Don is originally from Baltimore, Maryland, another city I love, and has practiced architecture for 40 years. Ryan is from metropolitan Detroit, which I have not visited yet, and has been a project designer with GREC for 20 years. The project we are going to chat about today, just by luck of the draw, happens to be in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. The 5MLK building is a mixed-use structure located at the Burnside Bridgehead at Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. It is a mixed-use building that occupies a prominent full-block site just across the Willamette River from downtown Portland. A serene two-story lobby welcomes both office and residential tenants at the busy urban corner of Burnside and MLK. Multi-level retail spaces round out the grade level. Five terraced levels of lushly landscaped commercial office spaces have access to private outdoor terraces. Sounds gorgeous. 
Office and residential users share a six-floor amenity level with intertwining indoor and outdoor spaces, including a fitness center, lounges, and a conference center with stunning views of downtown Portland and the Willamette River. And because I live in Portland, I actually know how to pronounce Willamette. Residents also have access to a 17th level rooftop pool terrace with fire pits and views of both downtown and Mount Hood in the distance. The building was conceived as an urban mountain, rising alongside the Willamette, musing on unique aspects of local ecology and geology. A multi-level system of water courses and rain basins puts the site stormwater filtration on display throughout the building and a robust art program, much of it public-facing, rounds out this unique gateway addition to the Burnside neighborhood. So let's talk about this building. I'm pretty excited to talk about this building. I moved to the west side a while back, and I didn't know it was there because I haven't been over to that side of town in a while. Share some stats about this building and and talk to me a little bit about what's unique about this building, maybe some of the spaces or, and, and even things that aren't unique but that you're proud of. Just tell me a little bit about the story of this building and the personality of this building. It's a mixed-use building, so it's uh, it's got about 100,000 square feet of uh, office space, and then it's got about 230, I think, uh, apartment residential units. And so, you know, that in and of itself is a little bit of a, a mix, a lot of stuff onto a site. There's parking below grade, and then there's a pretty significant square footage of retail, you know, kind of ringing the site at grade level. And then a host of amenities. And, and the first thing that we really wanted to do, uh, and we kind of came up with this idea with Green Cities, was to not strictly separate the building. So there's a single lobby that office and residents can use and share. And it's a really beautiful space. It's uh, you know, it's a place for for relaxing. It's not a space to just kind of walk through and get to the elevators as quickly as possible. And we really took that approach throughout the building. So although there are certainly distinct floors that are either office or residential, a lot of the amenities can be shared uh, seamlessly between the two user groups. And we think that that lends a lot of um, some unique aspects to the building and the experience of the building. We also really wanted to take that approach to the outside as well. So, you know, you can stand in various places and look at the building and see where there's office, where there's residential. So there's a certain level of obviousness to that, but it comes off as a cohesive building, you know, and that sort of expresses that goal as well. The real challenge that we had, I think, was uh, trying to fit all that onto this site. So it's a full block, but the blocks in Portland are a little smaller than what we're used to working with. There's a lot of grade, and then there was a very strict 200-foot height limit. And so to put the bulk that we were allowed to build and wanted to use for these uh, for these mixed uses onto that site was a real challenge without just extruding the site and making a big square cubic building. And so we spent a lot of time really trying to think about, you know, how do these different floors uh, satisfy the user's needs at each point, but create a form that's uh, intriguing and interesting and not just a, a, a squat square cube, which is basically what would otherwise have been put there if you were just literally interpreting the zoning ordinance. Also, being adjacent to the Central East Side Industrial Corridor, which the city has rightfully has a lot of pride in and wants to maintain, at the southwest corner of our site, we had to reconcile the mass of this building with basically what is a one and two story warehouse neighborhood. So that's kind of what led to the cascading terraces coming down from the residential portion of the building through the office 
portion of the building, and thereby creating these beautiful landscape terraces at each office level, but also bringing the building down to a manageable scale at the central east side neighborhood. So it's about two and a half stories tall there. Although the quality of the building is not the same as the quality of those old warehouses, it does kind of like settle in and it's at the right scale at least. This building, of course, replaced a you know somewhat loved or at least uh, respected uh, community neighborhood fixture, the uh, the Fishel's Furniture Store, right, which had already gone out of business. It was already closed down, but um, you know we did seek to find some ways to honor the legacy of that store. And you know, people have fond memories of getting their you know pre IKEA days, getting their cheap furniture there. And so there were there were a few ways that we were able to uh, to you know sort of take maybe the spirit and, and even some literal materials out of that building as it was disassembled and demolished and incorporated into our building. I, I think we kept some aspects of the sign, the, you know, the sort of cursive F that everybody recognizes. I think we were actually able to harvest some of the wood from the, uh, from the roof structures and use that on a floor somewhere. Oh, the table in the lobby. Yeah, that's the story right there, right? I mean, this was a furniture store. And we were able to take some of the bones of that building and work with a local artist to have it, uh, you know, reshape into actually a table that you can sit at that actually has been modeled or carved into a uh, sort of a geological representation of the volcano chain that, of course, is just west of a you know west of Portland uh, or east of Portland, I should say. That's really cool. We're we're a little um, emotional about our spaces in Portland and our our history and our legacy. And I remember officials. You you said that it's like I remember that building since I was a little girl. That that was there for a really long time. I didn't realize that's what. And it has, it's been closed forever, but I think that's really cool how you took a piece of that Portland history and, and made sure it lived on. We were told that everyone remembered officials because everyone has spent a lot of time sitting at the red light at MLK on the Burnside Bridge, looking at officials. That, well, that's why I know officials. It's right, not exactly. because I don't think I ever went inside that store, but I, I've sat in front. That was that's one of the worst places to get stopped at a red light. It's because <laughs> it really of the traffic, is. right? Yeah. So now we offer something different. We offer a beautiful two-story lobby and a bike storage room that features a I think it's a seventy-foot-long continuous video, an aerial drone video of the Willamette River that you can watch if you're sitting at the light. I, I have to admit that, um, I mean, I've, I've pretty much lived in Portland my entire life and I'm like five MLK. I don't recall seeing this building. Where is this building? And, and I went and looked it up and I'm like, Oh, wow. I was, you know, cause it is, it's an industrial area and it's an older part of Portland it looks like this monolith rising out of the rubble, to be perfectly honest, um, because here's this gorgeous, shiny, beautiful building with this very unique shape. I think that's what caught me right out of the box, because so many buildings like that are a square, you know, a square box. They might have a lot of glass or still be very pretty, but this, I, I don't I don't even know how to describe the shape, but it's it's a really interesting building, and I'm like, I was I was surprised, honestly, that the city of Portland let that building go there. But the waterfront on both sides of the river for a number of years now have been slowly developing, and these big high-rises are going in and uh, modern buildings to create. Obviously, housing is an issue everywhere right now. 
Yeah, I mean, the site, the prominence of the site is just mind-blowing. I mean, uh, we're proud of what we do, and we do it well, but it's a little intimidating to have such a high-profile site. <laughs> and, and it really is, because every single time, there's multiple freeways around there that if you're going, you know, traveling through this city or going over the bridges, we have lots of bridges, you're going to see that building. It so stands out from everything around it. You know, it's it's bigger, it's shinier. So yeah, you you guys have a big, huge, just live advertisement there every day forever, <laughs> but it's a pretty nice advertisement. Let's talk a little bit about some of the design challenges first. Obviously, fitting it on the site was a challenge and, and, and still not making it this box and giving it a personality. What were some of the other components of the building that were um, challenging to design and make make work for what you were trying to make it work for? Well, on a conceptual level, as Ryan referenced before, we were trying to echo the geological and ecological area. So we, we used the term urban landform, our proximity to the river and the fact that it's almost sort of a cliff or mountain, almost like in the Columbia River Gorge. We, right. we used a lot of the Columbia River Gorge as reference. And so we thought of this building with its proximity to the river as one of those sort of basalt cliffs that then terraces down to the river with heavy vegetation and waterfalls, which we'll get to a little bit later, and just sort of try to relate it to the ecology of the site. That was the concept that drove all of our decisions. The base of the building is surrounded by basalt from the area, so that it's sort of an abstraction of these uh, hexagonal basaltic columns. Um, so that's the conceptual level. On a little bit more of a detail level, we learned something really interesting. You know, in Chicago, most developers try to avoid excavating below grade, right? Because it's both expensive, uh, takes a lot of time, and often the soil is contaminated. So that's, you know, that adds to the cost. And then here, next, right next to the river, you got the water table to worry about. Exactly. Exactly. Which we, which we encountered. Um, <laughs> what we discovered structurally was that as a result of the great Missoula floods of 13 to 15,000 years ago, there's a layer of compacted gravel about 30 feet below our site that has a super high structural bearing pressure. So the fact that we wanted to have three levels of parking below grade, it actually got us down to that Troutdale formation so we could actually rest the building on the Troutdale formation. So we actually have shallow foundations for the building. There are no caissons. Whereas wow. in Chicago, you could dig as deep as 160 feet with caisson. So that was kind of an interesting local anomaly that turned out to be a real advantage to the building. I think the only people I've ever heard mention the Missoula floods are people who have had to build a building in Portland. <laughs> because I, you're saying that, and I'm like, I have actually heard of it because of building buildings in Portland. I don't believe this. I don't even have to go look it up. Um, Ryan, any design challenges that you want to talk about? When it comes to technical things, I think, you know, any building's got its levels of complexity and things don't always turn out the way that you draw. 
I mean, there were a number of places, I'm thinking especially that canopy, you know, Portland loves its canopies. Spent a lot of time trying to create some uh, unusual and interesting canopies at various places along the sidewalk. And that, uh, that front canopy along 5MLK, which is a real design feature at grade level, just looks like this, uh, this very sleek, like into almost like an airplane wing or something. You know, just this very singular form that just looks like what you see is what it is. But really, it's a watch. I mean, we spent so much time designing and redesigning all of the little pieces that support that, the structural pieces, and then the lighting that's incorporated into it. And then, of course, you know, all of the waterproofing and the membranes and all that stuff. There's a gutter that's concealed up back there that has to drain in such a way that you never see it. And then the way that that interfaces with all the structural steel that forms the facade. I mean, that was weeks of uh, thinking and rethinking. And <laughs> That's a great example of something we talk about a lot here, which is the more simple and minimal you want something to look like when it's finished, the more complex it is inside. You're like the third guest I've had since I've started this that talked about the complexities of the canopies they were putting on the outsides <laughs> of the buildings. And it's like, I'm listening to you and I'm going, I am detecting a theme here, um, and 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 you 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 just said so many of the exact same things, the connections and the in the waterproofing, and and I'm just like, okay, so maybe we we need to be looking at some things about canopies in this industries because all of them said it like took us forever. Um, so you can't talk about challenges with design unless you talk about where all the real challenges happen, which is during construction. Any aha moments during construction? I want to know about that water table because Ryan made this little comment over there and he didn't really say much after that. And I'm like, did we have a flood? What happened? <laughs> when we did ex excavate to the Troutdale Formation, we found that there's actually an underground stream that feeds into the Willamette that goes right under our site. And because of Portland ordinances, we couldn't dump that directly into the river, even though that's where it was going anyway. Right. But because it was on our site, we had to manage it. So I think it was probably three weeks of a very high volume of collecting this underground river running through that we had to uh, sort of get it off the site long enough to be able to pour our basement. So, yes, we, um, we had some very interesting hydrological experiences in Portland. Yeah, my, my first reaction is, what do you mean get it off the site? <laughs> like, 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 seriously, what, what, what did you, I mean, were you out there with buckets? How did you, how did you get it out of your way? Uh, giant pumps. Giant pumps pumping it into tank trucks so that we could form and pour the concrete that created the basement. And then the river could resume once we, once we had all of that settled. Another interesting thing about the basement was that that site abuts three different governmental behemoths. City of Portland controlled Ankeny and Third. The state of Oregon controlled MLK because it's a state highway. And we were underpinning under the streetcar on MLK, which was complicated. And then the bridge falls under the auspices of Multnomah County. So <laughs> we had, Welcome to Portland. Yeah. <laughs> we had plenty of uh, governmental interactions during uh, construction. Did not one thing you just said surprised me even a little bit. 
Um, so how about the building itself? Any, any interesting um, fun stories you want to share with me about the building construction? <laughs> The, the very top of the building, of course, has a mechanical penthouse, but it's also, you know, it's hovering just above the pool terrace, uh, the residential pool terrace, which is a pretty key moment, of course. A lot of views uh, in all directions, and of course, a pool. So, you know, we had designed a, uh, a, bit, a bit of a watch up there. I mean, it's got some open spaces. It's got enclosed spaces, a lot of mechanical equipment. And we had designed this cohesive enclosure that had a, a, a sort of a uniform appearance, a, a, a metal screen that was perforated. They covered both the uh, open spaces and the enclosed spaces. And you know, well into construction, the uh, the GC suggested some some cost saving. Let's not use the term value engineering, but some cost saving ideas about what uh, those various parts could be. You know, it was a classic example of well, if you change this one thing, then you know we've got to think through all the other bits and pieces that have to change. So you know, if you remove the roof on this piece, what does that mean for the structure that's supporting the mechanical screen that's adjacent to that? And then what does that mean for, you know, the continuity of the enclosure between the enclosed space and then the structure that's supporting the mechanical screen? Because those are two different systems. You know, it's easy on paper to say, well, this thing's $100,000. If you do it this way, it's going to be 50000 But what does that entail from everything that that touches? And, you know, at the end of the day, often these $50,000, you know, savings items incur another $100,000 of adjustments down the road that weren't fought through at that first moment. Yeah, well, and, and not that often doesn't include the costs of all the people's time to yeah, right. research and redesign <laughs> sure. and whatever you have to do to decide whether you want to make these changes. Yeah, we won't go down that rabbit hole because I, I have a feeling it, it would not stay in my nice, sunshiny, happy place that I like to try to keep us. So a little birdie told me I should be asking about a creative solution for stormwater treatment filtering on this project. So spill the beans. This is an idea that really came out of our collaboration uh, with the landscape architecture group that we worked with, uh, who's based in Portland Place. Uh, like all buildings in Portland, we have to deal with stormwater. And uh, to some extent, to the greatest extent possible, uh, in our case, you know, we wanted to store and treat stormwater on site. And so back to the concept, we wanted to do that in a way that was as much like nature as possible. So uh, in keeping with the idea of the building as a mountain, as the rainwater you know, collects on the face and uh, the uh, you know, sky-facing surfaces of the building, it's collected in pipes or scuppers or what have you in various places and visibly uh, sort of routed through the facade of the building through a system of uh, catch basins, basically, that are uh, made out of corten, a natural material and planted and, and basically filter the stormwater very much in the same way that uh, natural wetlands in a mountain landscape would as the water kind of seeps through the building down the different terraces and ultimately goes through a complicated sort of manifold pipe system so that it enters the street level, the sidewalk adjacent uh, basins, which are the very last step in the process in a, uh, a sort of a uniform manner and then kind of cascades down and back out to, uh, to nature, I guess, and ultimately joining that underwater river that we discovered. And this feature, we need to give a lot of credit to green cities because their high level of uh, sustainable design ethic uh, always forces us to come up with creative solutions that also demonstrate to the people who live in the building what's going on in the building. It happens in many ways. This is our most explicit, I think, example of that. But during a storm, having these uh, mini waterfalls on all these landscape terraces, if you will, was inspired by the way Green Cities approaches both its buildings and the people who live there. 
If I was queen of the world, every building would have some kind of water feature. Just the sound of water is so soothing and so natural, and it changes the space. So I'm going to go down my first rabbit hole. You just brought it up, sustainable design. What was the sustainable design approach on this job? Green Cities is very committed to the highest level of sustainability that they can achieve in any given project. At the beginning of each project, we have what's called an eco-charrette, and we get people from each discipline, not just design, but construction, uh, and even the money guys in the room, and we spend all day talking about what are the paths we can take unique to this particular project to achieve the highest level of sustainability. And of course, we're in Portland, so there's a bright spotlight on you, right, in terms of what you can accomplish So it's to their credit that we uh, stepped up to this, but ultimately the building is LEED Gold certified, Fitwell certified, and I believe we're the first urban mixed-use building to get a Salmon Safe certification as well, which means that all of the steps that Ryan just described about treating our stormwater the water that we're putting back into the system is cleaner than how we received it. And that's thought to be good for the salmon ecosystem in the Willamette. You talked about getting input from members of the team early. How did you deliver this project? Was it more of an integrated project delivery type of model? A little bit of a hybrid. The general contractor was involved from the very beginning. They were at the Eco Charette with the entire design team, including MEP, structural, etc. The subcontractors, of course, are later awarded once you have enough information to get them on board. Hoffman Construction was the contractor, great team member, very collaborative. Um, very resourceful in terms of finding solutions to uh, cost issues, let's say. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the window wall uh, sub, who's actually a Chicago-based company. This is their first project in Portland. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, we so it's, this is Reflections, window and wall. And uh, they work, you know, now they work all over the country, but this was their, I think their first West Coast, certainly their first uh, project in Portland. And uh, we brought them to the project because they bring a certain level of innovation. We've worked with them before, so we have a relationship. But the... Uh, you know, 90% of the enclosure is this window wall system, but it incorporates a number of elements. And that was really the magic is that it, I think it's the first project in the country that uh, incorporated these new large format, uh, you know, they're very thin, like, what is it, five, three, three eighths of an inch porcelain panels. So full, full size, you know, three meter tall by, you know, as, as, as wide as a meter porcelain panels that are actually glazed into the prefabricated window wall systems and as well as the glass and the metal and all that and uh you know they were a big part of the design i mean i don't think the building would have looked anything like what it looks like in terms of its sleekness uh but also the composition of the materials and the continuity of the uh, enclosure is, is absolutely due to the fact that we were able to use all these materials in a single system and they were involved pretty early on i think a lot of the enclosure was designed with their input um so you talked about the window wall a little bit Tell me about some of the other products you used or or things that are maybe unique about some of the products you used on this building. Yeah, you know, beyond the window wall, we talked about the porcelain panels. Um, You know, the the idea behind the porcelain was uh, not just to do something innovative or different or new just because we could, but because, uh, you know, we wanted to use a material 
that was a an obvious contrast to the glass and the metal, the sleekness of that, bring a little bit more nature. Porcelain, it's not obviously a naturally occurring product, but it's made out of natural materials. It sort of echoes the stone, and it has a really nice quality. You know, we've, we've uh, kind of discovered that in uh, certain lighting conditions, you know, in full sunlight, it all looks the same color, but in cloudy days, you can see that there are, in fact, two different colors that are used in distinct places on the building. Right. Almost has a leather surface yeah. quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Close, it looks oh, really wow. different than it does from a distance, so. It's worth taking a trip over there to check it out if you're Well, I, I'm walking. sitting here thinking that, you know, it's Friday afternoon, I don't feel like working anymore, maybe I'll just hop in the car and go look at this building. <laughs> But what else did we use? Well, the zinc. We, we love zinc. That canopy that I was describing is clad in zinc, uh, which is, again, a natural material that weathers well. I think that's something that, you know, that's a theme we keep coming back to here. These perhaps highly manufactured materials, but made out of natural ingredients, let's call it, that weather well. I think I think we think about our buildings in the future. You know, we want them to look good. You know, in Chicago, there's a lot of old buildings. You know, we love the Chicago brick, the traditional brick that just looks better the older it is. And we want our buildings to look great in 50 years or even 100 years, who knows, you know. And the key to that is using materials that weather with age and, uh, and, and get better looking, not just older looking. Yeah, as, as metal panel goes, uh, zinc is our favorite just because it has that sort of dull depth to it that you know a painted metal panel doesn't have another material that i was super excited about was the and it, again it's trying to nod toward the uh, volcanic activity in the area but the basalt if you if you do visit the building this afternoon i, su- I suggest that you go into the lobby which is a little bit below the sidewalk uh, definitely below the bridgehead sidewalk and what we wanted it to be like is that if you're below the grade, you're digging into the basalt. And uh, you know how basalt forms in a sort of a naturally hexagonal form? We kind of abstracted that and split it apart. It has a nice feel to it. It's a very tactile material, and it's contextual. Looking back on your process and solutions, what would you each of you say after all was said and done for this building, was your maybe top one or two lessons learned that going into your next whatever you do, whatever building you do, whether it's similar or not, but something that you would do differently next time? Um, One thing I'd like to tip my hat to, surprisingly, is the design review committee process in Portland, uh, which many architects, including ourselves, were justifiably suspicious of. We don't generally <laughs> like to be told that somebody knows better than we do what the solution is for the site. Um, we had three design review uh, yeah. assistance meetings, the sort of pre-process, and then we had two actual design review. And it took, I think, maybe about a year, maybe nine months to a year to get through it. It's a very thorough process. Uh, you pretty much have to have your building designed before you can even go into it. And then they tell you that they're not going to accept that design and you have to come back with something else. Okay, so that was initially kind of frustrating, but I would have to say that over the course of working with them and then coming back to the drawing board and really, really putting our heads against what their input was, I have to say it's a better building as a result of that process. 
Yeah, I mean, we are, you know, as a firm, we always, we have this regular thing that we do here called Lessons Learned, some, somewhat unoriginally. And, you know, every time we finish a project or we're substantially complete, you know, we like to spend some time kind of dissecting what happened, where the pain points were. Um, and, you know, I, I think when we started doing that, our assumption was, well, that's going to lead to, well, if it went this way, next time do this. And that's the lesson. But I think what we found most recently is that, it, you know, most of, most of the challenges that we run into don't really lend themselves to like, okay, well, next time do it this way. We've had to kind of back away from the specific issues that we run into and try and develop more of a posture, you know, so there's maybe more of a, um, uh, an eye towards sort of a collective intuitive uh, growth than just sort of a set of lessons learned. And so from this project, I think, I, you know, one of, the, one of the big takeaways that I feel from this project was, you know, this is a very complex project. A lot of the specific things that, you know, quote unquote, went wrong, uh, you know, aren't necessarily going to be repeated in a articulatable way in the next project. But I think some patterns that we saw that, I, you know, I think we're thinking about on, on similar projects that are going on now are, you know, trying to balance how much detail we had gone on into for certain things. So going back to that canopy, you know, we had it all figured out, but then again, because it's a sort of an ecology, it's a system of parts. When the contractor comes to us and wants to change one thing for whatever good reason, whether that's about money or availability or just that thing isn't going to work the way that we thought it was, you know, and we spent all this time to design something that is completely detailed now we have to kind of unwind all that stuff and go back, you know, but there were other parts of the building where for whatever reason, maybe we ran out of time or maybe even anticipating these kinds of challenges, you know, we just sort of sketched out a concept, you know, drew a profile and didn't really get into the weeds. And in some ways that went better because we were able to partner with the contractor or some of their subcontractors and actually kind of closer to the time of construction, figure the thing out. And in some ways that actually went better, not always. So I'm not sure that there's a hard, fast rule there, but I think it's something to keep in mind, uh, you know, on, on our projects that we're working on now is trying to find that right balance between having the thing totally figured out so we can just disappear and let the contractor build it. That's never going to happen, but that's, that's one goal. <laughs> but on the other end of the spectrum, you know, just sort of articulating a vision and then assuming that when it's time to build it, we'll, we'll be out there with the contractor or the sub figuring it out on the spot. And there's, uh, there's some advantages to that process too. And so, you know, I, th I think we're, we're trying to find the place in between those two extremes that is going to yield the best results. <laughs> uh, and, that, and that's tricky. It is. And I think, you know, the nature of how we're putting buildings together is changing. Yeah, I've, I've been around for a while. You know, five years maybe. <laughs> I've been around for a long time, and we are doing projects faster. Our buildings are getting more complicated. The schedules are tight. The budgets are tight, and and I mean, it's been a recurring theme my whole career. I have communication, my number one drives me crazy at work thing. Over thirty years, the same top five risks for an architecture firm they're they're the same as they were thirty years ago from an AIA report because we don't want to change. So. Anyway, that's that's my soapbox. Um, <laughs> final question of the day, and everybody gets this question on this podcast. If you were master of the universe and you had complete control to change one thing in the industry, anything, could be huge, could be something little, and your word was law and everybody would have to comply with that one thing you'd change to result in better project outcomes or a better built environment or something, it's just something in an industry that would never be an issue again. What, what would your, your magic spell be to make us better? 
Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to expand it beyond the industry and to the public in general. I think more education and promotion of awareness of the built environment in all aspects, quality of space, quality of materials, the effect of space on on the psyche, as well as sustainability and environmental issues. If we all became more aware of the environment that we live and act in, we probably would have an improved environment. I couldn't agree with you more. Also have everybody understand that architects are not the dad on the Brady Bunch. They actually do they <laughs> actually do really for, important work. I've been striving for that for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me know how that's going. Okay, Ryan, your turn. You get to perform your magic. What are you going to change? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, so it's, it's kind of different facets of the same thing. But I mean, just the we uh, as designers, you know, we, it's easy to fall into the trap that we're experts. And I think that, you know, it's, it's helpful for, for me to think of architecture more as a craft than an art. And I only mean that in the sense that anybody can see when something's well done or well executed and design should certainly be like that. I, you know, I think that, you know, Don used the term education, but you know, every, everybody should have the expectation for themselves that they're capable of recognizing when something's well done and to expect that. And I think if people did, I don't, I, you know, there's, there's a level of education there, but I, I just think that people don't trust themselves to say, you know what, this building is better. I'm going to pay to live in this building. And if everybody was doing that, I don't think we'd have such crappy buildings just being thrown out there because people would be more discriminating. And I, I, I just, you know, I think that that's a, an attitude change that uh, would make a huge difference for our cities. Yeah, there's lots of attitude changes we could use. But those are some great ones. Gentlemen, it has been truly an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. I mean, you're you're going on my list of they're coming back for another another season. Um, Because that was just, just plain downright entertaining. And I really appreciate you being here today. Um, Thank you for taking your, I know how busy everybody is. Um, And I will definitely come look you guys up if I'm in Chicago. We can go have a beer and you can tell me more interesting stuff. Thanks for having us, Cherie. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.